Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we're joined by Dr Malcolm Davies and Dr Marcus Hellier from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. My name's Grant McCarran and I'm joined today by Catherine Zeising, Managing Editor for Australian Defence Magazine. G'day, Kath. How's it going? Hey, Grant. It's good. Thank you. Uh, we're also privileged to be joined by uh, Dr. Marcus Hellyer and Dr. Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Welcome, gentlemen. How are we doing? I'm good. Very well, thank you. Now, uh, back in February at the ADM Congress, Uh, The two of you made a couple of very interesting presentations. Uh, Marcus, you were talking about budget and doing your analysis of the numbers, and it's always fascinating to uh, hear what you have to say in that area. And Malcolm, you did quite an impressive presentation on the strategic environment that we currently find ourselves in. But uh, what's really interesting right now is uh, February seems like a couple of years ago at the moment due to the uh, dreaded COVID-19 reactions. So we wanted to have a chat with the two of you about uh, what the impact of COVID-19 is that you've seen so far and where you see the world going as uh, hopefully we recover without too many secondary or tertiary waves uh, of the dreaded infection. So uh, starting with budget, Marcus, uh, you were reporting that we were pretty much on track for 2% spend as per the uh, white paper. What do you see the impacts being of that, of the COVID on that? Well, that's the, the big question, isn't it? So back at the, the ADM Congress, uh, we'd just gone through the bushfires and so there was some question about the big budget picture from that and now we've had COVID-19, which is sort of many orders of magnitude bigger. So it's a very uh, reasonable and topical question is what will the impact be on the defence budget? Now, I think one of the things we're starting to see is that the economic scenarios are perhaps not worst case that people were predicting. Again, it's still the possibility of second and third waves, not just in Australia, but globally. So there's still a lot of uncertainty there. But what it kind of looks like at the moment is we are in recession, no secrets there, but it's not looking like a deep grinding depression so far. So what does that mean for the defence budget? Well, the government has actually explicitly said that it is committed to the white paper funding model. Now, as I pointed out at the ADM Congress, the white paper funding model is a bit different from 2%. So there's actually two separate commitments. One was to get the defence budget to uh, 2% of GDP by 2021. But the government in the white paper also acknowledged that if GDP fluctuates and you tie the defence budget directly to GDP, then it will fluctuate as well, which makes it very hard to plan, particularly when defence is in you know very long acquisition contracts. So what it did is it provided in the 2016 a fixed funding line, and you can find that in the uh, 2016 white paper. And to date, the government has actually delivered against that funding line. So defence has had an an unusual luxury of funding certainty. And uh, the government has actually come out and said it's committed to that white paper funding line, uh, which is a good thing for defence. What that means, however, is if uh, GDP stagnates and defence keeps getting that funding line, it actually starts to get 
quite a lot more than 2% of GDP. In fact, it could rise up to about 2.2 or even 2.4% of GDP. And was actually heading there even before the bushfires and coronavirus hit because essentially GDP was not growing as fast as predicted back in the, the white paper. So um, defence is if the government continues to deliver, is in a pretty good position. Of course, the question will be what happens if the recession continues for uh, several years, or in fact, there is a second and third uh, wave, um, and there is a, a much bigger impact on the, the Commonwealth budget. And then in that point, the government may need to step away from that uh, that commitment. Now, uh, it's not surprising that we at, at ASPE actually think the government should be spending more than 2% on GDP, and uh, Malcolm will tell you why, because of our strategic circumstance. But, you know, I think um, I think that could be a little ambitious for the next couple of years to get government to, to spend beyond the white paper funding line. If it sticks to that funding line, I think, uh, you know, Defence can count that as a pretty good win. I would just note, however, that the last few times that uh, there's sort of been economic slowdown, such as the global financial crisis, uh, the, the government of the day tried to stick to its funding commitments and eventually, because it was trying to get back into surplus, um, it did cut the defence budget because it was trying to um, find cash everywhere so it could return to surplus and meet that commitment. So um, what we've I've done a bit of analysis of looking at sort of the relationship between financial crises and the defence budget and what generally happens, and there's only two or three cases, so not a huge sample, is uh, a cut to the defence budget doesn't occur immediately, but it tends to come several years later when governments try to get back into surplus and return to, you know, the old a maximum, you know, good government requires budget surpluses. So there's still room for a, a cut, but uh, at the moment the government is uh, talking a good game and um, saying it's going to stick to the white paper funding line. Well, that's certainly a bonus because that was going to be one of my questions was as GDP goes down, oh my. But of course, uh, the future, we could potentially have a change of government and things like that. So you just can't account for that, I guess. But you, you mentioned during Congress that we've been significantly lower since the end of the Cold War on our funding. So this is bringing it back up to 2%. But you had some charts that were showing the amounts being spent from World War II through Korea and Vietnam and beyond. And we were significantly higher than 2 or 2.2 or even 2.5%, if I recall correctly. Yes, that's correct. So if you look at the funding picture through the Cold War, um, Australia was regularly spending 25 and to 3% uh, of GDP on defence. And that was essentially outside of the hot parts of the Cold War. So at the peak of, the, say, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, we were spending well beyond 3%. But in general, it was in that 25 to 3% kind of range. Like every other Western country, essentially, Australia experienced or harvested a peace dividend at the end of the Cold War. That was done by governments of both sides of politics. Uh, what I've argued, and I'm sure Malcolm would agree, is that if you look at our strategic circumstances at the moment, do they look like that happy era of post-Cold War US unipolarity or something more like the Cold War? And I would argue it looks something a lot like the Cold War and potentially 
even worse because even though Soviet Union was very capable military power, it wasn't particularly interested in the Pacific and the Southeast Asia terribly much, whereas, you know, that's China's backyard. So I'd argue that we are in a strategic situation that um, is even more dangerous and uncertain than the Cold War. I, I think it will be interesting to see what the budget brings out in October. So moving the budget from, from May to October due to all the, the COVID pandemic issues is, is throwing out the traditional budget cycle, I think, that we're all used to. Um, and with planning going on within defence around the force structure review, uh, national mobilisation, and I think some of the, the points that Malcolm will bring up too, I, I do wonder at the moment is it a bit like one of those old-fashioned poker machines where you pull the lever and you get different numbers on every time you, you pull it? It makes it really hard to plan around the, the levels of uncertainty that we've got at the moment. Uh, and, and I really do feel for strategic planners right now, it's, um, it can't be a barrel of laughs. If I could just um, add something to that, I think it's pretty clear that the force structure laid out by the 2016 White Paper that the government is still committed to, and it's publicly said that all of the mega projects in there are are essentially, you know, off the table. They're not part of negotiations or discussions about, you know, changing the force structure. So if it's committed to, to them, defence is going to need that white paper funding model to be able to afford them. And even then, I'd say it's... Uh, will be very challenging for defence to afford that force structure. It might be able to buy it, but I'm not sure it will be able to operate it because the operating costs of all of those systems are many, many times greater than the things they're replacing. Uh, you know, And I'm about to put out a paper which uh, suggests that Land 400, the future armoured vehicle programs, will cost about 10 times as much to operate as the vehicles they're replacing. And you see that right across the force structure. So I think it's going to be very challenging anyway. And so if the the October budget does reduce the defence budget, it's going to become doubly difficult. And uh, I think defence will have to start making serious changes to the force structure, not just kind of tweaking around the edges, but proper full-scale changes. Yeah, you, you did mention in February about the impact of sustainment. You were pointing out the cost of maintaining Growler and um, and Super Hornets was more expensive at present than maintaining F-35, which was quite amazing. Yeah, so the cost of air combat is probably going to triple in real terms from where it was uh, back with the F-111 and the classic Hornets. I think the cost of submarines is going to uh, at least triple as you move to uh, – twice as many boats, which are nearly 50% bigger. But the one that was new to me was um, armoured vehicles, which could be about 10 times as much. And, in fact, they could cost more than the columns <laughs> to, to sustain. And columns is currently the most expensive capability in defence. So at some point you think something's got to give. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of money going in. There's the big projects. There's sustainment, as you've just talked about. But I think there's a number of people, especially in uh, headquarters, who are looking to the future and thinking we really do need this new capability. So this could be a great time to bring Malcolm in for a chat about some of that strategic overview and what we're looking at right now. Malcolm, back in February, uh, you said that we're actually in our warning period now. The previous white papers had said, oh, we'll have 10 years, but not anymore. We're in it. And you actually compared this to like the destabilizing effects that the world experienced during the 30s. 
care to elaborate on that? Yeah, look, I think we are in what I sometimes call a pre-war period or, or a period of strategic warning akin to the 1930s. You've got situation emerging out of COVID-19, uh, assuming that we don't have a massive second wave uh, in, the, in the later this year, early into next year. Assuming that doesn't happen, uh, you have uh, uh, China uh, emboldened, uh, having emerged from COVID-19, apparently, according to official figures, with only 3,000 something or other uh, deaths, um, their economy has taken a hard hit, but they've come out of it reasonably secure. And they look at what's happening in the US where the US economy is, is shattered in many respects and the, the COVID-19 pandemic is continuing uh, and with the strong potential there for a second wave. And I think that the Chinese feel that this is their window of opportunity. So I do think we are in a period of strategic warning uh, where you will see China push on all fronts. Uh, and they're already starting to do this in the South China Sea, they're increasing coercive pressure against Taiwan. Uh, they're doing this along the India-China border. They're undertaking greater, uh, more uh, intense, coercive wolf warrior diplomacy against Australia um, to try and um, pressure us to uh, back down on a number of fronts. So I do think that, you know, Marcus is correct, um, is becoming financially far more difficult to sustain the sort of expenditure on defence that was predicted or, or supported in the 2016 white paper. But to be honest, given the strategic environment that we're facing now um, and with the uncertainty about where the US is going in a number of fronts, we need to spend more on defence than what the defence 2016 white paper said. And that's going to be really challenging for the, for the reasons that Marcus um, highlighted. And yet, do we sacrifice our security and our strategic interests to try and hold some sort of financial bottom line, or do we say, look, our, the, the defence of the country and the defence of our interests uh, and the security of the region are more important than good financial governance? It's a really challenging, wicked problem, and I'm not sure how that's solved. Malcolm, do you get a sense that there's an appetite within the Australian public, though, to spend more on defence? Well, look, I think that um, Australian people are never... Uh, hugely supportive of a big defence budget. It's defence is not a vote-winning issue uh, in many respects. But I do think at the same time, there's much greater awareness of what China is about in terms of political warfare, hybrid operations, grey zone activities, the coercive pressure against this country. Uh, now, whether that translates into an awareness of what China is doing in the South China Sea or other places like that is another question. And whether Australian people understand that we may not be able to count on America as much in the future. And so therefore, we do need to spend more and do more in terms of our own defence and with our partners in the region to counterbalance China is the big uncertain question. But I, I do think that um, it will, it, depending on who you speak to in the Australian public, I think that there will be uh, broadly an awareness that the situation with China is far more precarious and dangerous. And so therefore, we do need to respond to that. We just can't go on you know, as if um, nothing had happened previously. Uh, and so the question is, how do we do that? And there's no good answers there. Your point about being a strategic planner, I think, is most apt. How do you, how do you manage this situation where we are in a pre-war period, but we don't necessarily have the resources to do what we need to do to prepare for that conflict that's that potentially is happening later this decade? So do you think in terms of force structure, we need to perhaps put some more emphasis on our asymmetric advantages? What could that look like? 
Well, I don't think defence really is the is the, the key agency to deal with Chinese political warfare or grey zone operations. They can do some things uh, in certain areas, but really uh, dealing with Chinese political warfare and grey zone operations has to be a whole of government, whole of society response. And so there has to be a broad national security strategy there as opposed to a defence strategy per se. I think defence can... Uh, exp- uh, develop greater force structure to enable them greater ability to see what's happening in the South China Sea or to respond to threats at long range, uh, you know, greater ability to invest in unmanned systems, for example. Uh, but the political warfare of the sort that we're seeing China undertake now in terms of information operations, uh, influence campaigns, uh, espionage, cyber operations, um, these sorts of things have to be an, uh, the the, uh, the purview of, of a national security strategy rather than purely a defence response. If, if I could jump in there on that point, Catherine, I think you're right in saying we need to think a little more asymmetrically. Um, our force structure tends is a kind of very conventional one, so very kind of traditional, conventional kinds of platforms, and we're trying to make them bigger and better at what they do. And I think eventually that is a losing game. When you get into the game where we're building $3 billion ships and submarines up against hordes of masses of million, $2 million anti-ship missiles, I think, you know, the the value for money calculus starts to uh, look a little bad. Now, if you look at what China did, so when China when China was confronted by US overwhelming military power, it deliberately adopted a asymmetric strategy. It's famous A2 AD uh, strategy. So it didn't attempt to kind of outdo the Americans at their own game. I mean, now it almost is. <laughs> it's building ships faster than the US. But at, at that critical stage, it adopted a kind of asymmetric strategy. In return, the US is now considering asymmetric strategies. So the US Navy and the US Marine Corps are considering variants of a kind of A2 AD strategy to, you know, bottle the China up within the Second Island chain. And of course, uh, US Navy is very actively looking at uh, autonomous and unmanned surface vessels and uh, subsurface vessels. So they're looking very actively in the kind of asymmetric space. And I think for reasons of affordability as much as capability and also protecting our valuable people, we need to be doing a lot more in that space as well. Yeah, I would add to that. I think Marcus is correct um, in the sense that there is so much more we could do with unmanned systems, but we need to change our mindset. The mindset that we have at the moment in terms of unmanned systems is a very sort of incremental, cautious mindset about how we invest in these capabilities. Classic example being unmanned underwater vehicles. Navy has a mindset, well, they've got to be torpedo tube launched. They're small. They're managed from the submarine, so they're remotely controlled. Uh, they're designed for short-range operations to do mine warfare clearance, that sort of thing. That's entirely the wrong approach. Uh, What we need to be doing is investing in advanced capabilities like Orca, uh, the extra large unmanned underwater vehicle that is fully independent, uh, that in effect can work alongside manned submarines or crewed submarines uh, as a a mixed manned unmanned team, uh, can uh, travel thousands of kilometres by itself to the South China Sea, undertake uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, and also eventually deliver lethal force. Uh, 
So I think that there needs to be a step change in how we think about unmanned systems rather than being a low-cost adjunct uh, to crude systems uh, that may be acquired 10, 20 years down the track. We need to invest in these capabilities now and experiment with them and do spiral development so that we can start to rapidly introduce these systems very quickly. They, uh, they're complementary to rather than a replacement for manned platforms. There's certainly a lot of interest at the moment um, from I'm seeing in some of the US publications regarding tiled mosaic warfare approach, where instead of uh, going through, as you're saying, the, the big, bulky uh, capability acquisitions, you're going for smaller, uh, more disposable systems that work together as a whole and to all together make up a, a mesh and a, and a mosaic of all the different sensors and, and um, attack devices and things like that. Uh, Kath, I know you've spoken about, uh, I believe it was the last episode you were talking about, uh, any sensor, any weapon, and best sensor, best weapon for the best kill. Yeah, it, um, it does come down to that kill web, I think it is. So any sensor, best shooter. Um, and that, I think, is a concept that the ADF is ex- it's exploring through a couple of different avenues. Um, so I think the services have been quite good in leading exercises or Autonomous Warrior, um, so that the Navy has run in conjunction with Five Eyes Partners um, on the east coast of Australia every year or two. And that looks at manned, unmanned teaming across a range of different technologies that are surface and subsurface. Um, Army Innovation Day has been working on manned, unmanned teaming technologies, not just across um, their capabilities in terms of lethality, but also for training and simulation as well. And taking out those those dull, dirty, dangerous, the, the three Ds of unmanned teaming. Um, so when you could have a person in the loop, why would you? When you can get a robot to do it, and if you blow up a robot, it's a hell of a lot less um, messy than it is blowing up a human, I would say, um, both politically and in reality as well. So I think that uh, defence is moving down this path, um, and depending on which part of the organisation you deal with, it's at a snail's pace or they're going quite quickly in some areas as well. But it's those acquisition uh, channels for those technology demonstrator programs which are still perhaps not as clear as they could be. Yeah, the, one of the um, American senior senior military guys said that uh, the China absolutely loves the American acquisition process because <laughs> of just how slow and yes. uh, difficult it is. Yeah, and, and, and guess, which, guess, guess which model we have. Well, it's one that looks a lot like yeah. the US. So. <laughs> but uh, you, you were talking about uh, you know, best weapon and things like that. And uh, Malcolm, you mentioned about these autonomous underwater vessels that are out there and not just doing ISR, but potentially also applying uh, weapons and force. Um, Similar concepts of the loyal wingman concept for the air um, out there supplementing and so on. That opens up a major, um, from a public and political perspective, the concept of uh, these weaponized, unmanned, potentially AI systems making decisions for themselves. And, Kathy, you, you talked a little bit about human involved, but it's it's at this stage it seems like we still need to have that human in the loop. This, the remote sensors, the uh, unmanned systems, the AIs present the information to the human who then pushes a button. Just is, Do you see that being the situation or do you see us eventually progressing? Because I, I'm sure some of the people that we may go up with would probably have no qualms about having an AI and no human in the loop to take advantage of speed. So, Malcolm, how do you see that? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, from my perspective, it's very interesting that you do not see 
any demonstrations to ban killer robots in Moscow or Beijing. Um, you know, the Russians and the Chinese uh, have no qualms, as you say, about employing lethal autonomous weapons. Uh, there's no consideration whatsoever of the ethical, moral or legal constraints on the use of, of autonomous systems that are armed with weapons. Whereas we do um, go down the path of going through that debate about the moral, ethical and legal issues of lethal autonomous weapons and the constraints that are imposed upon those through not only our rules of engagement, but also our national values uh, and our strategic culture and just in bellow and just at bellum and so forth, laws of armed conflict. We have to go through all of that as a Western liberal democracy. Uh, the other side don't. Uh, and so therefore they have a real advantage there in terms of how they use these systems and how quickly they can introduce them um, whereas we are always going to be constrained by that. Now, we can push the envelope a fair distance with trusted autonomy, but if, if the man on the loop or the woman on the loop, the person on the loop, um, you know, is always there in Western force structures, that's always a single point of failure. You know, the ability for that person to make a snap decision, potentially to have to refer it up to political uh, leaders to get their approval. Uh, I don't, I'm sure your listeners have, se have seen the movie Eye in the Sky, uh, which is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, this is the problem with our approach, whereas our adversaries, no, they have, don't have any of such problems. They can deploy lethal autonomous weapons and use them without any constraint whatsoever. And as we've uh, seen recently, the impacts of COVID on a manned environment, for instance, the US Navy having a whole carrier unable to continue, uh, the potential for seeding uh, an, an air base or a military base or, or a, a vessel with somebody or some buddies who are infected, uh, you can particularly pretty much take out a whole fleet. Well, it's interesting, you know, um, the, uh, the, uh, obviously COVID-19 is not a biological weapon. Um, everyone understands that the most likely uh, origination of COVID-19 was from animals in a wet market that jump species into humans. But I can guarantee you that there are people in Beijing and Moscow that are looking at what happened with COVID-19 and thinking, this is what a bioweapon could do to destabilize and undermine and destroy uh, an adversary's economy and society if used effectively. This is not a new tactic, though. This is not a new tactic, far from it. You know, throughout military history, you would get plague bodies and catapult them into besieged cities. I mean, this is, as I say, not a new tactic. And there are very good reasons why biological agents used in warfare are so tightly controlled. And I would like to think that we live now in a global system where such issues are taken very seriously by the global community. And there are consequences for using biological agents against a population uh, in such a way. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. The point I would make is that... Um, potentially, if you if you did have a bioweapon and you had an adversary willing to use it, they could use it uh, uh, concealed within a pandemic. Uh, and so how do you determine whether it's a bioweapon use or it's a pandemic? Um, and you know, there's all these sorts of potential options for grey zone activities that we need to think about. We know that COVID-19 is not a bioweapon. The, the um, medical community have determined that. But what in the future... If we suddenly are faced with another pandemic down the track, um, how do we know for sure that it's not a bioweapon that's then used to undermine our society before an attack with kinetic means? So 
I'm just raising that scenario as one for your viewers, to, your your listeners to think about. And we've also, but the other side of what's just been going on with the whole COVID pandemic is that it's now put it very much in the forefront of the population that military can be taken out just as much as everyone else by something more powerful than the flu, but not a manufactured toxin that just happens to be out there and we don't have a defense against. Um, so perhaps this can now help influence and sway the people towards more use of unmanned vehicles, unmanned systems, because you can point out that you lose, if, if another pandemic, because now we know they're a lot easier to happen, and everyone's doing the research that, look, it happened in the wet markets, we're encroaching on um, animal territory. Uh, a number of studies have done, done with the population in China in the outer areas have found a number of antibodies similar to the COVID environment in people out in the country, indicating that we're encroaching on areas, we're going to potentially see more of these. Now people are aware of the impacts. Before it was 100 years ago, everyone had forgotten. It's, it's like polio. Everyone thinks polio is gone and they forget uh, what happened. Everyone was scared of go, coming home with a sniffle and things like that. So this is potentially an easier way to uh, introduce the concept of why we need unmanned autonomous systems to the population and the politicians. Can, can I just jump in and segue over to sort of a, another lesson learned out of COVID-19, which is uh, relevant to this, and that, and that is the issue of supply chain security. It's, you know, it, it's now impossible to pick up a newspaper or a, an article, uh, a, a journal, without there some article in there on supply chain security. So it's now, um, you know, a very topical issue. It's one that the government is aware of. I mean, interestingly, this is something where kind of defence industry is a little ahead of the broader industry because, with the government's industry policy statement as part of the defence white paper, it actually started to try and, I guess, you know, solidify critical defence supply chains. But what we've learned so far is that four years later, it, it's still really hard. It's really hard to, in this globalised world, to actually make all of the things you need domestically at a price you're willing to pay. So these are quite difficult issues and challenging issues. And no matter how much we may say we need to build things in Australia, whether it's um, you know regular everyday items or health items or military items, it's actually going to be really difficult. And that's why uh, you need to prioritise because you can't do uh, everything. Even the US finds that it can't do everything nowadays. And, and so prioritisation is necessary. And that, that, that will be politically diff difficult for the government, I think, particularly in the defence industry space, because it wants to do stimulus spending. It wants to show it's going to kickstart industry out of the COVID recession. I think we saw that recently with the government's announcement of six new Cape class patrol boats to be built by Austal, you know, an example of, you know, getting Aussie workers going. But I think it's a mistake just to build things in Australia for the sake of building things in Australia. You have to prioritise what are the things you really have to do here. And there are many, many really good things, as you, Catherine, would be aware of through your engagement with industry, many good things we could be doing in defence industry here. 
but there's also potential traps where you do things here in Australia where you don't really have to and you may not do it as efficiently or as affordably as going offshore. So, you know, yes, uh, we should be stimulating Australian defence industry as part of, you know, getting out of the COVID recession, but we need to prioritise and make good decisions uh, and not just willy-nilly fund anything. I think that balance point, though, of doing things overseas versus doing things locally is different depending on where you stand. Uh, If you're a politician, if you're an SME, if you're a prime, if you're a taxpayer, um, and that point, I think, is very much up for debate. And, you know, the various governments of the day have swung back and forth on that pendulum as to what is sovereign, what is strategic, what is necessary, what we can outsource. But as you say, COVID has really given us an excellent reason to reassess what we do and how we do it, Um, what things we we will continue uh, to do in terms of a surge and some things that we can perhaps do at home. It has been, as you say, quite interesting talking to a bunch of different companies at every level of that spectrum about how this pandemic has affected their work. And there have been some really good things come out of it. Um, it is possible to work from home. It is possible to work remotely in a defence context. Um, I was chatting to one company the other week. They were saying that they needed to get in battery parts uh, for a defence order and from the US. And their cost to do that, to import something about the size of a mobile phone, was five times the normal price because of air freight. Five times. Um, and it would take them a week and a half to get it. So usually this is something that would cost them a few hundred dollars and would be on their shelf within 24 hours. So I I think the resiliency in what we do and how we do it is being explored during this process, and the National Mobilisation Study is part of that. It discovered a hell of a lot of gaps, Um, and I do know a bunch of major programs have been affected by this. You know, our new supply oiler and tankers are sitting off the coast in Spain. They're ready to go, but we can't get them here. I'll give you an example, Catherine, of how doing stuff in Australia potentially impacts other Australian defence industries. So if you look at the costings for the self-propelled howitzer program that the government resuscitated in the last election, and as as an election commitment, the Department of Finance and the Treasury have to cost it, and those costings are public, and they assess there'd be about a $250 million premium to doing it in Australia as opposed to buying overseas. And you go, okay, well, we could be spending that $250 million on something like another offshore patrol vessel, you know, uh, something which I suggested in a recent publication. We should be doing more in in that space because we can get them quickly and relatively affordably. So, you know, that's $250 million, which is not going to, uh, you know, uh, another area of industry. Or you look at our innovation programs, so the two major innovation programs that Defence has, the Innovation Hub and the Next Generation Technology Fund, $250 million is essentially equivalent to two years of those two programs. So you could, by you know, buying building howitzers onshore, you're essentially sucking a quarter of a billion dollars out of Australian innovation and Australian R&D. So, yes, I I fully understand that there is an appeal to making these announcements and, and, you know, having the the news grabs with high-vis vests and hard helmets, but there is a cost to, to doing things in Australia that you don't necessarily need to do here. 
on that note, what we'll do is uh, look at uh, wrapping up this uh, this chat. Uh, we've gone through quite a bit. We've looked at budget. We've looked at the strategic situation. We've looked at the impacts of COVID and uh, gone into unmanned benefits and, uh, and the whole uh, Australian industry content or capability. Is there anything else you folks would like to say at the end? Um, we'll start with you, Marcus, then to Malcolm, and let Kath have the final word. Oh, well, I'd just say that, yes, every area of government will be under budget pressure. If the government does stick to its white paper commitment, you know, defence will have done well, and I think that's a good thing for Australia, but it does put the onus on defence to spend wisely, and that may mean um, reviewing and changing the twenty white paper 2016 force structure and thinking a little more asymmetrically and creatively. And I would add in that one of the um, things we're going to need to think strongly about is how do we do more in terms of burden sharing within the alliance? Because America is going through some difficult times, not, not only with COVID, but also now with internal um, challenges uh, in terms of domestic issues, which I'm sure your listeners are all aware of. And so what we need to do is make sure that America is, America's attention is not distracted away from the region um, to create a strategic vacuum. So we need to be able to burden share to a greater degree with the US and with our partners and that may mean we need to think about additional capability or changes in force posture or changes in deployments to make sure that you know we can work with the Americans within the region and keep them in. So it's more like a regional pool that comp- that, that complements a, 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 a domestic push from the United States to maintain its presence in the Asia-Pacific. Because if, if the Americans turn away and focus inwards too much, that creates a strategic vacuum that the Chinese will fill. Uh, and that we have much more serious problems than what we have now. So I think it's really important for us to burden share to a greater degree uh, than we do so even now. And that could mean opening up our facilities for greater US access, um, buying more capability from the Americans that helps them as well as helps us and doing more ourselves in terms of defence self-reliance in the region to have a more visible posture going forward. Yeah, I would actually like to see the nation return to a, a semi-regular national security statement or update as to what the whole of government response is uh, from the Australian government of the day. I think it's really important to make sure that we have those regional relationships at every level uh, strong and sound, that we do have those close military to military and police to police and coast guard to coast guard relationships in place throughout our region. We live in such an interconnected world that we can't do everything on our own, but there are some things that we must do on our own in order to keep ourselves safe, to make sure that we have security for our most basic needs. Well, Catherine, Marcus and Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing conversation and I really appreciate all that you've brought uh, to the discussion. And uh, thanks again for your time, ladies and gentlemen. We'll cut it here and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. Thank you.